out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me in the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. Begin reading in verse 22. How long will you keep the state of Solomon? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for a blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know that and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful, snowy morning in which we can gather as the sheep of your pasture to set our eyes upon the great shepherd and to hear from your word what it is that you have done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for these words from Christ. Thank you for the comfort that they bring to our souls. Thank you for the truth that is reflected in them. And I pray, Father, that as we meditate upon these truths now, as we look into the Word, that your Spirit would be working in our hearts, illuminating these truths to our mind and our hearts, helping us to look upon Christ with affection once again, that we may exalt Him in our minds and our hearts as Lord. Father, thank you for your work in the hearts of your sheep. I pray that it would continue this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you this morning. It's good to see many of you made it out and braved the snow. I know some of you did not. Welcome to those of you who've joined us online as well. It's hard to believe that Thanksgiving is already over and we have, we have now entered the Christmas season, which personally I love. I, I don't care much for winter. But Christmas definitely redeems the winter. And I love Christmas because I love to celebrate the wonder of the Incarnation. 
I think it is an amazing reality that every single year for an entire season, we are brought back to marvel at the fact that God became a man, that God took on flesh and became one of us in order to rescue sinful humanity. But at the same time, it is absolutely tragic to me that the whole world does not mar- stop to marvel at this truth. Because yes, many people stop to celebrate the holiday season or enjoy the festivities and all of that, but they are not marveling at what this is all about, at the incarnation, which really just goes again to show the state of the human heart. Because the reality is there is no good reason to reject this good news. I mean, there's no greater story in history, there's no greater story even in fiction than what God has done through the sending of His Son to grant forgiveness and eternal life for all who believe. The fact that the whole world does not immediately run to and embrace this as wonderful news is only evidence of the supreme sinfulness and irrationality of the human heart. Unbelief at its core is truly irrational. It's blind. It's not logical. And we are going to see that very much on display in this passage that we're going to look at today with this final confrontation between Jesus and the Jews. Today, as we finish up this great chapter that reveals Christ as the Good Shepherd, John chapter 10, we have come to Jesus' last confrontation with the Jewish leadership in his public ministry until the week of his death. And in this confrontation, we see how irrational their persistent unbelief truly is. The fact is, nobody had more reason to believe than these guys. They heard the truth over and over. They knew the Scriptures better than anybody that verified the truths that were before them. And they had undeniably seen miracle after miracle. His power on display. And in that, they had been given opportunity after opportunity. But yet they, they would not believe. And in this last exchange, Jesus is going to tell them why why it is that they will not believe. And as it is often in the case of the Gospel of John, in the middle of a heated exchange, we find some of the most glorious promises from Christ for those who do, in fact, believe. In fact, there is is no greater passage in Scripture when it comes to the security of the believer than what we have right here from the mouth of Christ. So we're just going to walk through this story and we're going to see two main things. We're going to see the nature and effect of belief in the words of Christ. And we're going to see the nature and effect of unbelief in the actions of the Jews. And for those of you who believe, I hope that you will see once again how supernatural and how secure your status is as one of Christ's sheep. And in that, I hope that you are encouraged to follow your shepherd all the more closely in the journey of your life. So let's take a look at this. Let's dive in. But before we get to the dialogue, 
you'll notice John is, is very intentional again to establish the setting, to establish the scene of what's going on. Look at this in verse 22. It says, And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. See, there's a, a very clear shift from verses 21 to 22. The time and the setting has changed. Though I do not think that there was a big gap between these two events, as Jesus is going to continue to speak in the same thematic terms that he was speaking in the prior confrontation. But it is now winter. This would have been somewhere in early December. And it seems that since the Feast of the Tabernacle began back in the in beginning of chapter 7, which would have been around October, to this point in early December, Jesus has likely remained in Jerusalem that entire time. And now we have come again to another one of the Jewish feasts. And remember, John has been using these feasts not only to see where we are chronologically in the story, but also to establish some thematic backgrounds for the unfolding events. Just as he did in the Feast of Passover and in the Feast of Tabernacles, in each case, he has been showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of these feasts. Well, what is the Feast of Dedication? Most of you are actually probably vaguely familiar with this feast because it goes by another name, which is Hanukkah. They are one in the same. Now, different than the three major feasts that were prescribed by the law in the Torah, this is an extra-biblical feast celebrated by the Jews, meaning it was instituted much later in their history, and it was not formally prescribed by God. Therefore, it's one of their, their minor feasts. But it was still a very important celebration for them. It actually points back to an event that had taken in the, the intertestamental period about 164 B.C. At that time, the Seleucid king who ruled over Syria, whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes, had taken over Jerusalem, and he had taken over the temple. And he had polluted the temple with pagan worship. He had set up an altar to Zeus, and he provoked the Jews by sacrificing pigs in the middle of the Jewish temple, thus profaning the temple. As you can imagine, the, the Jews did not take that very well. This led to what we know is, is called the Maccabean Revolt. It was basically a time of Jewish guerrilla warfare, led by a name a guy event Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer. His leadership eventually led to the retaking of the temple, and he became a national hero. And he re rededicated the temple to the Lord by offering up sacrifices to God for over a period of eight days. It was a time of, of rededication and consecration of the temple for the restoration of worship. This is why they have an eight-day feast, celebration called Hanukkah, in which they light a candle on the menorah each day to remember God's deliverance of His people and the restoration of the temple. And John notes that it was at this time, it was in the winter, that Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, the colonnade of Solomon... If you've ever seen like a picture or a sketch of what the temple looked like, it was a long roof porch that was covered on three sides, open on one, and it had pillars all throughout. 
And it was on the east side of the outer courts of the temple. Uh, and it was a place where many of the leaders would, would teach, and it was a place that would have covered, uh, provided cover from the winds. Well, what is the significance of all of this? How does this play into what's going on? How is this related to Jesus? Well, the, the conflict between the Jews and Jesus is now ending where it began, in the temple. If you remember, Jesus began his ministry in chapter 2 during the first Passover by cleansing the temple of all the trade that was going on. And in response to this, the Jewish leadership asked him, what sign do you show for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. A reference to his body. A reference, an obvious reference to his coming death and resurrection. But it was also a statement that he is the true temple of God. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up. See, with the coming of Christ, if anyone now wants to truly worship God, they must come to Christ and not a building. That's how it all began. That's how Jesus' public ministry began. Celebrating the time in which the Jews rededicated and consecrated the temple for the restoration of worship. But notice what Jesus says about himself in the middle of this conflict. Look down with me at verse 36. He says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated... And sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. You see why the Jews continue to focus on the consecration of a building for maintaining their system of worship and their nationalistic pride. God the Father has consecrated His Son and He has sent Him into the world for the purpose, the express purpose of true worship. The object of worship was there, standing in their midst at the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication points to Christ. He is the true restoration of worship. He is the one who has been consecrated for this purpose. But the Jews reject Him. And this final rejection of Him marks a final rejection of God and the true worship of God. It is evidence that the Jews do not actually know God. They do not worship Him. And the celebration of Hanukkah that continues to this day is only a reinforcement of that fact. It is a continual rejection of Christ. And by the providence of God, this is the setting that this final conflict unfolds at the Feast of Dedication. So look what happens with me in verse 24. Says, so the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the ESV translation of this word that they render gather around is, is rather mild. The NET and the CSB and others use the word surround on purpose. The Jews surrounded him. And that perhaps captures this a little more because the picture is not of that of an inquisitive bunch of people just gathering around to, to be taught or to hear what Jesus has to say. This is a picture of hostile leadership surrounding him to demand answers. 
And what are they wanting to know? They want to know if he is claiming to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. Now, if you go back through the Gospel of John, you will notice that Jesus is very careful about using this title, or rather, not using this title. Not because it does not belong to him, but because of Jewish expectations. As we saw quite clearly, especially in chapter 6, they were expecting a political Messiah to deliver them from their political oppressors, and Jesus was not here for that. And He didn't want to rise that up in their hearts. For this reason, the only time that Jesus explicitly revealed himself as the Christ was in a private conversation with a Samaritan woman. But that being said, though he avoided this politically loaded title, he has been anything but unclear about who he is. Their demand for him to to speak plainly or to speak clearly is likely in reference to his using metaphors and and figures of speech, as John noted that he did back in verse 6. But all they really wanted to do was to draw out of him a clear claim to hang him with. That's all they're after. This was, they were not coming here with true interest in who he is, but more in a desire to trap him. But Jesus is going to give them more than they bargained for. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The first thing Jesus tells them is that he has already told them. Though he has certainly used various metaphors and figures of speech, he has not at all been unclear. He has repeatedly told them who he is. He has repeatedly told them that he was the Son sent here by the Father, that he came down from God. He has now revealed to them that He is the good shepherd of the sheep. He is the the only door to salvation. He is the light of the world, the waters of salvation, the bread of life, the fulfillment of Scripture, the prophet of Moses, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. And on and on it has gone. He has been anything but unclear. And in fact, the, the greatest claim, which he's probably alluding to here when he says, I told you, was when he looked to the Jewish leadership and said, Before Abraham was, I am. And they understood what he was saying at that point. They knew it because they instantly picked up stones in order to kill him. Jesus makes it clear. He has made known who he is. And he hasn't made this known just in a vacuum. They have been made known in, in, in the midst of unparalleled, verifying power on display. He has both told them and shown them who He is. Which is why Jesus says, the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Just as the man born blind said, after the most recent miracle, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Jesus' power on display was undeniable. It was not like the claims of so many so-called faith healers in our day. You will notice a consistency about them, and that is that all of their claims are unverifiable. 
Not only are they not undeniable, but they are unverifiable. It's always elaborate stories that happen at some other time in some other place. Or they are healing unseen maladies on the spot that nobody can see or verify. But you never see it take place in some kind of undeniable fashion. You never see their opponents just baffled by their power and what they can so clearly do. But that is the way it was with Christ. Even his opponents did not try to deny his power. They could not. Their problem was not that they couldn't see what he could do. Their problem was they didn't believe the clear implications of what he could do. His power was verifying his claims. His power was verifying that he is who he says he is. Jesus has not been unclear about who he is, and he has not given them insufficient evidence to believe. Their unbelief was not due to lack of reasons to believe. It was something else. And Jesus will now explain to them what that is. Why it is that they ultimately do not believe. Look at verse 26. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, among all of the controversial statements of Christ, I think this one ranks near the top. Because it shatters our perceptions of how things are and our perceptions of our own control over our destinies. And Jesus just keeps doing this in this book. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus continues to give explanation for unbelief by pointing to the cosmic and divine realities behind salvation. That behind it all, it is God, not man, who is the chief cause of salvation. And this statement just drives that home. Most people would assume that this statement should be made in reverse, the other way around. You are not my sheep because you do not believe. Because most assume that you become one of Christ's sheep through belief. That belief precedes belonging. That in essence, it's all up to man. It's within man's power. If man just exercises the power of his will and he chooses to believe, then he will be one of Christ's. He will belong to Christ. But that is not what Scripture teaches. And that is not what Christ just said. He said the reason why these leaders do not believe is because they are not His sheep. It is because they do not belong to Him, not the other way around. There is simply no way around what's being said here. Jesus is clearly saying that being a part of his flock, being one of his sheep, belonging to Christ, is something that precedes belief and gives rise to it. If they were a part of his flock, they would believe. But they are not, so they don't believe. Which all goes back to, as Jesus has said over and over, as he says again right here in verse 29, from before the foundations of the world, the Father has given him a particular people for whom he has come. And those whom the Father has given to the Son are his sheep, even before they believe. 
I know a lot of people really get uncomfortable with the doctrine of election. But it is what the Scripture teaches. We must embrace it. I think people get uncomfortable for a couple of reasons, especially in our culture. One is that we have been steeped in a society where we believe that the chief virtue and the chief aim to strive towards is equality, fairness. The world is not right if there is inequality in the world. And therefore, if God chooses some and not others, then that's not equal and that's not fair. He must be unjust. Further, we have been raised in an evangelical environment, especially in the 20th century, that preach on the supremacy of man's will. Every man's destiny is in his own hands. He must choose. And man's choice must never be violated, even by God. But the reality is, if God were beholden to fairness, and the choice was left to man, then all would go to hell. No one would be saved because no one would choose Christ. Apart from the electing grace of God, no one would respond in belief. That is the sinfulness of God. This problem of humanity. Every other sin is just a manifestation of that main sin, rejection of God. And aside from divine grace, Unbelief and rejection is the only response anyone will ever have to Christ. This is why Jesus said back in chapter 6, He's already made this clear, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Why not? Because of human depravity. We might marvel here at the persistent unbelief of these Pharisees in the face of all the evidence, in the face of all the miracles But in so doing, we're actually only marveling at the natural response of every human heart. We're marveling at who we are, apart from grace. Apart from grace, this is how we would all respond. And no display of power or miracles would overcome that. But praise be to God that out of mercy and love, He did choose a people to make His own. He has a chosen people who are His sheep. And by grace, they will respond when they hear the call of the shepherd. Look at verse 27. Look what Christ says about His sheep in verse 27. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I think if ever there was a faithful summary on the whole of what it means to be a Christian, this is it. This is who we are. This is what God has done for us in Christ And this is who Christ is, all wrapped together in this beautiful statement. See, the primary evidence that you are one of Christ's sheep is that you hear His voice and you follow Him. 
Those who are not his sheep are marked by persisting unbelief. Those who are his sheep are marked by a belief that responds to his call and follows. You see, they spend their lives following the shepherd. That's what the true sheep do. And again, Jesus asserts for the third time in the chapter that he knows them. It's about who's each one of them a proper name. It could just be boiled down to a, a mere acknowledgement of the facts. It's far more than that. Certainly you must believe the truth, but true belief results in and looks like sheep following their shepherd. It is a person whose, whose greatest aim and ambition in life is to follow Christ, to follow the shepherd, because that's what sheep do. They are one-tracked animals. And when they hear the voice of their shepherd, their only aim is to follow him. Wherever he goes, that's their focus in life above everything else. They will follow him. They will follow him through valleys. They will follow him over mountains. They will follow him through meadows or even through swamps. It does not matter what they are walking through. Wherever he leads them, they will follow. Now, certainly sheep wander off here and there. They get distracted. We must face the facts that sheep are rather dumb animals. That's just reality. But even then, even then, when they hear the familiar coaxing voice of their shepherd beckoning them to keep coming, they run back, always, and they will keep coming, keep following. They never wander off completely. And no matter what dangers they face on the journey, they have a shepherd who will never fail them because the shepherd will see to it that they make it to their destination, which is glory. You see, the sheep are completely secure in the care of this shepherd. The everlasting, the ultimate fulfillment of the sheep for, that's what grand goal of the shepherd, which is exactly what Christ is making plain here. I don't think he could make it more plain. Look at the completeness of the security that Christ presents. He says, I know them. They're, they're known by the shepherd. He says, I give them eternal life. Meaning, life that will never end. And then he says, they will never perish, which is to say the same thing, but in the negative. But it is oh so comforting, because no suffering or hardship or trial will ever cause us to perish. And further, he says, no one will snatch us out of his hand. And if that wasn't enough, he says, no one will snatch us or is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand, because the Father is greater than all. Our security is bound together to both Father and Son. And it is more secure than anything you can imagine. It is as sure as the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. You see, Jesus, Jesus says the flock here is a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Father will see to it that His Son receives His reward in full because He loves His Son. And because the Son has received this flock from the Father, the Son will see to it that He stewards this flock in love for His Father. He will not lose one of all that the Father has given Him. 
as he said in John 6. That means that our eternal security is bound up in the eternal relationships between the Son and the Father, in their eternal love for one another. That is how secure it is. Those who teach that you can lose your salvation honestly don't even understand what redemption is all about. It is ultimately about the love between the Father and the Son. And it cannot be lost because that love will never fail. It is tied to the very being of God. Which is why Jesus finishes this in verse 30 by saying, I and the Father are one. Our security is tied together in that reality. In who He is. One with the Father. If someone was wondering about the, the logical conundrum of how, how can we be both in the, the Father's hand and in the Son's hand at the same time? Well, Jesus just answered it. It's because they are one. And with this statement, He answers their question with absolute clarity and plainness. The plainness that they desire. And He obviously gives them much more than what they were asking for. In saying that I and the Father are one, Christ speaks not just of their, their functional unity, but beyond that to their essential unity. Yes, the, the purposes of Christ are the same as the purposes of the Father, but they are so because He and the Father are one. They are one in essence. Though they are distinct, there is a Father and there is a Son. He does not say I and the Father are the same. They are not the same but they are one in essence, co-equal and co-eternal. Jesus is now explicitly declaring to his opposition the same divine truths that John began with in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is distinction and there is unity. There is distinction and there is equality. And the security of the sheep is rooted in the fact that he is one with the Father, that He is, in fact, God. It's a massive claim. And the Jews get it. They got what they wanted. A statement to hang Him on. And look how they react. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. They don't respond with words. They don't ask for clarity. They knew exactly what he said, and they sought to kill him. Just as they did back in chapter 8. They sought to stone him there in the temple. And their justification for this would no doubt be because they thought they were being obedient to the law. This is what they were hoping for. Something to justify enacting the demands of the law. Particularly Leviticus 24 which says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. Despite everything they had witnessed, they had no room in their hearts or minds for the possibility that he was speaking the truth. And so they're ready to just skip the trial and head straight for execution. But Jesus stops their murderous intentions with a question. Look what he says in verse 32. Jesus answered them, 
I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Notice again, much like what we saw in chapter 8, Jesus just remains calm and in control of the situation. He does not panic. He does not fear these Jews. Rather, he just offers a rebuttal to their wordless verdict in the form of a question. I've shown you many good works from the Father. Just as he said back in chapter 5, the works that he performed are the works of the Father, which testify to the truthfulness of his claim that he and the Father are one. And for which one of these are you going to stone me? Which one of these for which are you going to kill me? Are you going to kill me for opening the eyes of the blind? Are you going to kill me for healing the, sa- the lame and the sick? Are you going to kill me for casting out demons? How about for feeding the 5,000? Is that worthy of stoning? Which one of those justifies capital punishment? Jesus is reminding them again of all that they've seen and heard. He's pressing their conscience. Look how they respond. The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You know what I love about this? Is that you can tell his question had its intended effect. It caused them to pause. Well, sure, they had an answer for him, but think about what they're doing right now. They are trying to convince the so-called guilty party of why they need to execute him. If they were really sure about what they were doing, the rocks would be flying. They wouldn't be sitting here deliberating with Jesus. Why would you care what this man thinks right before you kill him? They aren't really sure. They're just in a whipped-up frenzy with rocks in their hands, and they don't really know what to do. And it's not really him that they're trying to convince. It's themselves. It's their own consciences. And their argument is weak. And Jesus is going to poke a hole in that. He's going to show that they actually have no scriptural grounds for what they are wanting to do. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law when I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, this response has caused some confusion on exactly what Jesus meant here, but I think that's simply because people have a tendency to overthink it. They have a tendency to overthink what he's doing. This is a quotation from Psalm 82. When he says, your law, often the term law was used as shorthand for the entirety of scriptures, the Old Testament. And the emphasis here on your law is just pointing out to them that their own scriptures contradict their actions. In Psalm 82, God is addressing the judges of Israel. And he addresses them as gods because of their exalted office. They have been set over the people to execute the will and the judgments of God. So in a sense, they function in the role of gods over the people. The Lord did a similar thing with with Moses when he made Aaron his spokesman. He he said to, to Moses that he would be as God to him. Now the scripture is not assigning to Moses or to these judges deity. It is simply saying that their exalted roles puts them in a godlike position to the people. 
And so in Psalm 82, when God rebukes the judges, He says this. He said, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, notice what Jesus does with this. He zeroes in on the use of one word from the Psalms to make his argument. That's how lofty his view of Scripture is. Which is why he says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus' view of the Scripture could not be higher. Every single word is inspired by God and bears divine weight. His entire argument here rests on the one word, God's. If you were to bring any word of, of, of the Scripture into question, it would break it. Every word matters. Now, with the word God's, with reference to these judges, all that does is simply prove the fact that Scripture has a legitimate category for using the word God in reference to mere men. Some heretics like to use this here and say, see, Jesus is saying that he's not God. He's, he's saying that he too is a mere man and can legitimately use the title God. But that is to utterly miss the point, and it is not to follow the logic of this text, or the rest of the gospel, for that matter. Because Jesus is using an argument from the lesser to their position. His point is that, I, that if Scripture applies this type to speak mere men in their positions, I am, how can you say that I am set apart, consecrated, and sent into the world, and I have only used the title, the Son of God? In other words, I have the, the most exalted position, much higher than the judges of Psalm 82. I am the one consecrated by the Father, and I haven't even used the title God to refer to myself, but rather the Son of God. And you're ready to kill me for that? When even the Scripture calls these judges gods? This is irrational folly. They have no grounds, no scriptural grounds for their actions. Leviticus 24 does not apply. And Jesus' argument here is not meant to deny that he is claiming to be God. He just declared equality with the Father. They are one. His point is rather to show the irrationality of their verdict, that this was blasphemy. They have no scriptural warrant for this, nor they have any evidence. They hate him without a cause as the Scripture prophesied that they would in Psalm 69. Because all of the evidence that they do have demands the opposite verdict. It corroborates his claim. Which is why he one last time appeals to everything he's been doing. Look at verse 37. He said, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He is appealing for them to just, just look at the evidence that is before you. Think through this. If I have not done the Father's work, if I have not given you sufficient evidence, then do not believe me by all means. But if I have, even if my words are hard to believe, at least believe what you've seen. The evidence is right before you. It is there. And if you will just see the truth of it, 
you will know that my claim is true, that I and the Father are one, that He is in me and I am in Him. That's His appeal. Sadly, Jesus' appeal to the, the truth and the logic of the situation falls on deaf ears. And they once more attempt to seize Him. Verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. We are one more time not told how Christ escaped, just He did escape, because the hour had not yet come. Do you know, the question might be asked here. If Jesus knows all men, He knows and he knows we're in this chapter. Then why does he bother with these leaders? Why does he demonstrate who he is and even appeal to them? I mean, he's the one who said, you are not among my sheep. So why bother? I think for a couple of reasons. One, the less obvious one, is because in these exchanges, there are typically large groups there who are likely listening in. And while those who are leading the charge are not his sheep, he's made that clear, there very well may have been others there who are listening in who are his sheep. And he knows that. We saw this happen in chapter 7 with Nicodemus. But there's a second reason that is explicit in this passage. And that is for judgment. So that they will be without excuse. Remember how chapter 9 ended and how this entire chapter was set up at the end of chapter 9. Jesus said this in chapter 9, verse 39. He said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. See, the blindness of the Pharisees has now become complete with this final rejection. Think about where they are. They are in the temple. They are in the place of worship. And God is there with them. And instead of worshiping God, they are in His temple seeking to kill Him. There is no greater blindness than what is happening right here. And Jesus is going to actually explain this further when we get to chapter 15. Listen to what he says there to his disciples. It's like in the context of him telling his disciples that they will be hated as well, that they will be persecuted just like he has been hated and persecuted because he chose them out of the world. And then he said to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is not saying by that that they were not sinners prior to His coming, but that the ultimate sin of rejection of Christ and thus God would not have been made manifest had He not come particularly for the Jews who thought of themselves as the sole servants of God, the chosen people of God, the sole worshipers of God. Christ's coming revealed to them what they really are. It revealed them for who they truly are, which is God-haters. 
They hate the Son, and therefore they hate the Father. So the God that they proclaim to worship exclusively is actually the God they hate. And Jesus' coming made that manifest. He revealed that. See, Jesus could not have made things more plain for them. All he did was good to them and good among them. But they hated him without a cause, just as Scripture said they would. And this goes beyond the Jews, though. This is, this is everyone who rejects Christ. Everyone who rejects Christ is a God-hater. As Christ said in John 15, no one can, can love God and reject Christ, reject the Son, reject the manifestation of God to this world. It is impossible. And so because of this final rejection on the part of Jews, they are revealed for what they truly are. And because of it, he now leaves Jerusalem. In a very real sense, God leaves his temple. It's over. And he will not be back until his coming hour. Until their desire to kill him has come to full fruition. But this story does not end to get on an altogether dour note. Look at verse 40. It says, He went away again, crossed the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. We haven't thought about John the Baptist in a while. Even though he was, he was so prominent in the beginning of this gospel. And I think that's quite intentional on the part of John the Apostle, the writer. And certainly by this point, John has, has long been dead. He was beheaded by Herod. But the last thing we heard from John was in chapter 3, when his ministry was starting to die. And he told his disciples, John's disciples, that this was a good thing. Because Christ must increase, and I must decrease. And most certainly, that desire of John's was fulfilled. I mean, as a church, we haven't even thought about John since we've been working through this in about a year. Because Christ has taken center stage as he was supposed to. John's desired legacy came true. John's entire purpose was to prepare the people for Christ's coming public ministry. And when Jesus finishes out his public ministry here in Jerusalem, he goes back to the place where it all began, where John was laboring. It comes full circle back to the place where he had prepared people to receive Christ. And they do. Many, in fact, believe upon him there. And they do so because they see that everything John said about Christ was true. It wasn't about John. Despite all the frenzy around John the Baptist, it was about Christ. And they see that now. And this points us to the reality that Christ does have his sheep. And they will believe. They may not, there may not be very many among the elites in Jerusalem, but there were lots in the countryside among the common people, showing once again that God chooses that which is foolish in this world to shame the wise. It is a fitting 
ending to a beautiful chapter. Church, the great lesson of this chapter for us is to see the world in history for what it is. For what God is doing. The world is a stage for the story of redemption. A stage for God's sovereign plan to unfold so that He will be seen for who He is. And the magnitude of His grace may rightly be understood and marveled at by His people for all of eternity. By God's unmerited grace, we who believe are the sheep of His pasture. By nothing that we have done, just the gift of His grace, just being recipients of His grace. And because of that, we have a chief shepherd who is leading us to glory. And nothing will stop us from getting there. As Paul said so beautifully in Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are, we are bound together with God by His love in Christ. And that cannot be broken. Praise God. But that knowledge should not cause you to be lackadaisical or passive in your pursuit of the shepherd. Quite the opposite, it should spur you on with overwhelming gratitude for who He has made you to be. It should cause you to want to follow Him all the more closely. You know, in keeping with the metaphor, in a, in a big flock, the sheep who are the least likely to wander off or get into trouble are those who are closest to the shepherd. Church, stay near to Christ. Follow Him closely. Stay in His Word. Depend on Him in prayer. Keep the ears of your heart in tune with His voice. Don't put yourself in the position of being, needing to be dragged out of the mire of your faith. Pursue Him daily. Pursue Him closely. He is your great shepherd. He is your chief priority. There is nothing more important in your life than following Christ. And you are to give yourself to that in every aspect of who you are. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that our position is not dependent upon us, that our security and our staying power does not come from the strength of the flesh, but is bound together in who you are. And it is wholly dependent upon your love for the Son and your Son's love for you. Thank you, Lord, that our hope is certain and our future is sure. And even now we are being led by our chief shepherd through this life as we look to the day when we will see him face to face. God, give us the strength to follow him all the more closely, to be in tune with his voice, to love and cherish and feed off of your word, 
to lean hard into prayer. Pray these things.